In spring of 2022, New York City's Tourism Board launched a halal travel guide to New York. The 11-page PDF highlights major sites in each of the city's five boroughs, as well as halal dining options, Muslim-friendly hotels, and places for prayer, along with recommendations from locals who are part of the city's Islamic community. Cultural-specific guides are important in tourism. They acknowledge how different cultural backgrounds can shape people's travel experiences. And they help attract people from specific communities by showing that a destination caters toward them. There's financial incentive too. By 2028, it's expected that Muslim travelers will spend 225 billion US dollars on travel, led in large part by Gen Zs, millennials, and women. Halal travel is definitely having a moment. So, what is halal travel? And how inclusive is the tourism industry really when it comes to Muslim travelers? What barriers are Muslim travelers facing when they explore the world? And how can the tourism industry address them? We're unpacking these questions and more with Sumeya Hamdi. Sumeya has taken the industry of Muslim travel into her own hands with her organization called Halal Travel Guide, not affiliated with the City of New York's PDF Guide. This is where she curates trips designed with Muslim travelers in mind. Okay, so this is your reminder that if you aren't already subscribed to the show, then go ahead and hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because we have so many more episodes coming this season. And trust me, you're going to like them. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We're at Alpaca My Bags Pod and Alpaca Pals. Please leave us a review. Yes. That's a great way to get in touch with us. We love seeing what you have to say about the show, what you like, what you don't like. Just just write write a little novel in the comments for us. Be honest, but be nice. Also, you can DM us or even email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the show notes. Okay, Erin, so I sent you this link to an article on DH Canada. It is a list of the most disappointing Canadian cities, according to tourists. And I I just need to know your thoughts on this list. I guess first and foremost, I'll just lay it all out there. Here's what's on the list as I scroll. So Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa, And Quebec City. Oh. <laughs> right? Who wrote this? <laughs> Alpaca Pals. This is why you cannot trust the internet. And it's an anonymous list, Aaron. It's only written by, quote, national trending staff. I should write the editor. Listen, I am like just shocked that Toronto's on there because not to like be the typical Canadian who lives around Toronto slash in Toronto and Toronto being the center of the world, Toronto is not like that disappointing of a city to travel to. There is so much stuff to do in Toronto. And as someone who just moved out of the city a few years ago and like regularly makes trips back a couple of times a month, every time I go back to Toronto, I'm so excited and everything makes me happy there. And I will also go on a rant about this because as a Christmas gift, I gifted my parents this Toronto experience It was with a Chinese food writer who took them around Chinatown and Kensington Market and like gave them history about that neighborhood, took them to all these restaurants where they could try food, like some of the best places that she knew of. And she got they got to learn about like the people who owned those restaurants and their history there. And they had like the best time. And it was like a private tour. They went with I booked it on Airbnb and I think two other people booked it. They just had the best time. Like there's so many great things and so much history in Toronto that like you can learn about and just be a part of. Like how dare this list trash talk (laughs) Toronto like this? I mean, allegedly this list is according to tourists. So why do you think tourists don't like Toronto? So, okay, as someone who's lived in Toronto for 10 years, downtown Toronto, the Toronto hatred is real. I am not from Toronto originally, so I know a lot of people outside of Toronto, and I hear often about how they don't like Toronto. And the things I hear quoted the most are traffic. Yes. (laughs) Which, like, every city has it. (laughs) Also, I'm always just like, then don't drive a car. Ride a bike like me. 
And then, yeah, I've heard people say, like, there's nothing to do other than, like, the popular museums and the CN Tower. And I think the problem is that there are a lot of, like, quote-unquote mainstream attractions, and these are sort of the default that people go for when they go to Mm -hmm. Toronto. I think the other issue is people always stay in the downtown core, which is very, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, like, high-rises. It's very, like, cement But the number one thing I tell people visiting Toronto, even like people visiting from nearby Ontario places, I tell them like, don't stay in that neighborhood, branch out, go into the other neighborhoods. There's so many incredible neighborhoods in the city. And that's where like the real life of Toronto is. Like last summer, I had a friend come and visit me from Ottawa and she was blown away by the weekend we spent in Toronto because she was like, this is not how I ever spent a weekend in Toronto coming here just as a tourist without someone local to hang out with. But that's the problem, right? Like not everyone knows someone in Toronto who can show them a good time. But I think the key is just to do some research and like go to other neighborhoods like Chinatown. Kensington Market is pretty touristy, but I would say like that's definitely a good place to start. Go west, go to like Little Italy, Koreatown, all those neighborhoods are incredible. Parkdale. I keep telling everyone to go to Parkdale. Go to the Toronto Islands. I always tell people like take advantage of Toronto's parks. Like so much of Toronto life is like centered around parks. Mm -hmm. Just go and sit in Trinity Bellwoods and you'll experience a different side of Toronto that you're not going to experience in the entertainment district. Okay, so this article also lists the most lackluster touristic attraction for the city, according to tourists. What do you think that is? I feel like most people say the CN Tower. It's the zoo. I mean, to be honest, like, (laughs) why would you, like, I wouldn't travel somewhere else to go to a zoo. I mean, maybe if it was like a world-renowned zoo. This is what I'm wondering. I'm like, who is putting, like... Do we have a good zoo? I've never been, so I don't know. Well, apparently it's lackluster, so (laughs) apparently not. Okay, I want to get through a couple of these other cities because it's just so hilarious to me. Ottawa. This is where you are born and raised. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on Ottawa being lackluster? (laughs) (laughs) People who know me personally know that I really don't like Ottawa. But this is like a a bias because I had a biased experience, right? I grew up there. And the reasons that I don't like it is because I just didn't find the community that I want there. Some people absolutely love living there. And I actually fully understand why tourists would like Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Because there's actually so much to do there. And it's an interesting city. If you like, want to learn about like politics in Canada, you can go to Parliament Hill. There's so much nature nearby. I actually think it's a great city to visit. And because it's the center of government in Canada, they put a lot of money into keeping Ottawa like really nice. I used to have friends who visited from abroad and they would always comment on how like clean and manicured Ottawa is. So it it has a different vibe than other Canadian cities. And some people really like that. Also has really good museums. Yeah. I mean, if you're into museums and history, then this is like the place to be. For sure. If you're into like exploring culture and all of that stuff, I don't feel like it's the place to be. I don't feel like I can comment on it because I haven't lived there for like 15 years now. I think like one of the roughest parts for tourists probably is the infrastructure there for getting around is really bad. Like you kind of need a car to get around Ottawa. Lastly, I just want to touch on Montreal because I am obsessed with Montreal. I love Montreal so much. Every time I go there, I'm so happy. I love all the stuff that they have. If you go in the summertime, you might catch the jazz festival. There's like so many amazing places to eat and have cocktails. If you're into a cocktail scene, there's so many places to enjoy music. There's it's just and so many different kinds of music. Like how can you hate Montreal? I truly don't know. I truly don't know. I li- so I lived there for five years. When I moved to Toronto, I for like three years was like I'm going back to Montreal like Toronto sucks took, yeah. it took a while for me to become a Toronto a Toronto person um, the only reason I didn't move back is because I didn't have friends there anymore and, and having community and friends is really important to me but I truly think it's a more livable city than Toronto because there's so much going on all the time they're just doing a lot of things right in that city 
it's a very easy city to get around. Like you can bike everywhere and it, you're not even necessarily biking in the road too. You can bike through tons of alleyways. There's so many parks, so many parks where you can just go and sit. And also unlike Ontario, you there's you can have like alcohol kind of out in the open and you can get alcohol at... Depener. Yep. Yep. So you can just like everything is just very easy to it's easy to have fun in Montreal. Everything's and so they've easy. got the best bagels. Yes. So tourists did not think that the biodome was very exciting. Uh, I mean, I liked the biodome. Okay. I've never been. So I mean, I think it's worth going to. It's cool. Well, my question to you is just given like these landmark attractions that this article is saying, like, we're not very interesting. What does that kind of tell you about, like, the tourism representation of these cities? Like, I would never think of Toronto actively advertising its zoo as the place for tourists to go. That is interesting. It seems weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, lots of people have asked me, whenever someone goes to Montreal from Toronto, they ask me, what should I do? And I don't think I've ever told anyone to go to the Biodome. (laughs) Like, I went to the Biodome in Montreal, like, in the depths of winter when I just needed something to do on a Saturday. And it was nice for that. But, like, if I'm going to Montreal in the middle of summer with all the festivals on and the good weather... It's not really where I would head first. I think it's, I think some of these things end up on the lists because they're good for families. If it was a family going to Montreal, I would definitely say go to the Biodome. So I think sometimes that has a bit of an influence of like where people end up going. That could be the zoo as well. Like I know lots of families go to the zoo. Totally. Final question for you. What city do you think is missing from this list? Well, I don't think any Canadian cities are disappointing. Actually, maybe Calgary. Maybe. The thing is, when you're in Calgary, you're really close to Banff National Park. I spent some time in Calgary and I definitely was like, no desire to go back. (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't much to do and the weather was really bad. I mean, this list is just rude. I wouldn't even put Brantford on this list. (laughs) Like Brantford has fun things to check out. And if I had people visiting... Uh, I would definitely have a a whole list of things for them to check out in Brantford. And that's just a matter of like consciously trying to get to know a city better and like knowing what exists and what opportunities are there. Because I mean, when I first moved to Brantford, before I even moved to Brantford, like I cried knowing that I was likely going here because I was like, it sucks. Like I was so upset. And then when I moved here, I actively was like, this has to be fun for me. And so I consciously was like, okay, I need to find like where the culture is, what people are up to, like what people really love. And I've been like so excited to find so many cool things here, even though like there's a lot of boomers here who hate everything. There's a lot of young people here who are like trying to make this city really awesome. But that's Um, different because it's like you're living there. I know. I don't know about a tourist coming to Brantford, how they would feel. Well, I'll just set up a tourist list for you. I'll, I will set you up with an itinerary. It just has to be on a specific day. Well, and listen, I feel like you're getting at this anyways, but like like Luke and I famously always love the cities that people tell us we're going to hate. Like I always talk about Amman in Jordan. People, everyone was like, skip Amman. Don't spend more than a day there. We ended up loving Amman so much that we went back on the same trip. Like we spent two days there. And then at the end of the trip, we made a point to go back and spend more time in Amman because I think this rule applies everywhere. Cities are what you make of them. If you put in effort, like you're going to find beautiful things in every city. People Mm -hmm. said the same about like Mumbai and like cities in India. And we loved all the cities in India. But I think it's because like you have to put a bit more effort into finding the good stuff in a city. A lot of it for me is just like wandering around and like seeing seeing just people living their lives. I find that interesting. My name is Sumeya. I live in London and I am the founder and managing director of a company called Hello Travel Guide. Essentially what we do is we curate tours designed with Muslim travelers in mind. And what that means on a kind of practical, very simple level is if you kind of look at, okay, what does it mean designing a trip with Muslim travelers in mind? Muslim travelers are kind of very undercated too in the general travel market. 
but it's uh, the Muslim travel market in general is actually the fastest growing segment in global travel and tourism. It's going to be worth around 11% of the global travel market very soon. It's coming up to around $250 billion. Uh, so the money is there, the statistics are there, but still it's such an underserved market. And as a young Muslim traveler myself, I've personally experienced many of the challenges that so many of us face, which is lack of access to good quality halal food. You know, like when you travel, one of the joys of traveling is trying out the local food and you want to be able to do that. But it can be a little bit challenging as a Muslim traveler. Um, another one is getting access to prayer facilities. Muslims pray five times a day. And it can be a little bit hard to do that if you're on the go and you're not aware of places where you can just have a quiet minute and pray. And also kind of activities that are kind of Muslim friendly, you know, just um, cookery classes, tours, little things like that. So experiencing these challenges myself has really kind of, I think, been the the spurring, uh, the, the key motivation for me to try and make it easier for other people to get access to good quality travel experiences and, and boost uh, people's confidence to feel like they can travel, they should travel and not just go to kind of safe, safe spaces, but go somewhere completely different where you might not think actually I, I would be welcome here or I, I would find find it easy to have an enjoyable time here. So that's kind of at the heart of what I do. Amazing. I'm really excited to chat a bit more about these challenges and also solutions that you've come up with. But I actually wanted to chat a little bit about your connection to travel growing up before we get into it. Because I was reading on your website that you referenced traveling to North African destinations as a kid. And you mentioned that your family went there because it was easier to travel as a Muslim family there. Yeah. I think it's natural for anyone, for people in general, to kind of lean towards traveling to destinations where you know you're going to feel comfortable, whether it's to do with the food or the culture or the language. And uh, my father, he's actually Algerian. So we used to visit Algeria. Actually, I used to go by myself with my brother um, in the summer holidays. You'd spend like the whole of the summer holidays there. But we also used to go and visit Tunisia as well. And it was just kind of an easy place to go to as a Muslim traveler because Back then, it there weren't really kind of any uh, destinations marketing to Muslim travelers. And in fact, <laughs> 20, 30 years later, that's still pretty much the case. There's still a lack of marketing designed to, sh- to say to Muslim travelers, hey, if you come here, we will be catering to you and, and we'll, we'll be you know giving you access to things like halal food and prayer facilities. But that is starting to change. Traveling, um, experiencing these travelers' challenges as a child, I think has really kind of stuck with me because I've always wanted to travel. I love learning about history. I was a proper history nerd. I studied politics and history at university. And I feel like uh, one of the best ways to be able to connect with history is by meeting people from different backgrounds and and different experiences, different life experiences. So although it was a little bit hard, I think it's only kind of uh, encouraged me more to travel and, and encouraged me to kind of against odds, try harder to, to access these hard to find experiences. And what does travel look like for you today? Yeah, so most of my travel is either uh, going with guests on some of our group tours or traveling with my family. I have two young children. Most of the time it's it's for the company, whether it's kind of researching a destination. I mean, before we run a tour to a place, we kind of have to scope it out first. So we'll head out there, we'll meet the local people, we'll try and get a feel for the place because you can read a guidebook, you can read about it online, but on the ground, it can be very different. And you also want to get to know the people that you're going to be working with and get their feedback as well as to what you should include in an itinerary or certain things that you can't find online. And so I find it really helpful just to head out in advance and do little research trips. I usually do it with a friend or with a family member where we'll go and, and kind of meet local people. And actually, we have a research trip coming up to um, Georgia and Azerbaijan, which <gasps> will be really interesting because such an interesting part of the world, right? Mm. The Caucasus, but there are hardly any Muslim-friendly trips that go to the Caucasus, which I think is such a shame. So we're super excited to kind of be able to spearhead that hopefully and and work around some of the challenges and, and bring that so that people can have something a little bit different and feel like this is accessible. I can do this. And I think that's the main thing about halal travel. It's not It's not really complex. It's really very simple. It's just about Muslim travellers wanting to feel like they can go to destinations that aren't back home visiting family or safe spaces, uh, destinations like Muslim-majority countries where they, they feel like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably feel welcome. They want to be able to push the boundaries and, and go to places where they may not feel comfortable. And 
I think sadly, some people have had negative experiences traveling where they they lose the confidence to do that. And I myself did have experiences like that growing up. I mean, I remember one time when I was, I think, around 16 years old. This was actually in, in Turkey, which is a Muslim majority country. I remember we were at the beach and this was before burkinis were invented. So I was wearing, I think, like, I don't know, a T-shirt and leggings or something like that. And I remember an old elderly man just gave me a horrible look and said, you know, like, why are you wearing that? And it was in Turkish, but his his meaning was clear. You know, it's like the way that you are dressing is not welcome here. It doesn't look good for the community. It doesn't look good for the destination. And I was just a teenager trying to have a nice time on holiday, minding my own business, you know. So things like that are, are common stories that you'll hear among young Muslim travellers, especially women as well. And it's moving past that and feeling like the yes, okay, these things happen, but they're where there's every negative interaction has two or three very positive interactions that can dispel that and, and give you the confidence to keep going and keep trying. It sounds like a lot of it like might have to do with awareness because even you mentioning about finding a safe place to pray five times a day while you're abroad, that's something I never ever have considered. So that's news to me. And I'm sure there's lots of people around the world who who just don't know. And so bringing more awareness is a big piece of this. Yeah, I think it's also awareness and thinking without having to kind of uh, really go overboard to um, make adjustments. I mean, mm. what I'm thinking in my mind is in South Korea and Japan, what they've done is they have multi-purpose rooms where you can nurse your baby, for example, or um, have a quiet prayer space and they have these in like the underground tube stations or just like in random places dotted across the city so people can use them for different things and what they have done is repurpose them so that you can also use them for praying and it just has to be like a clean space a quiet space where you can do that and then continue on your day so it's not a case of building mosques or building prayer halls it's, it's really can be very simple and and in fact even when it comes to praying while you're traveling we do have um, a little adjustment that we can make, which is when you're traveling, you can sh uh, shorten your prayers and you can batch them together. So rather than praying at five separate times of the day, you can pray at three times of the day. Uh, okay. So it's not like a super strict schedule. You can sort of morph it to work with your day. Yeah. So w when you're traveling, the idea is you shouldn't put yourself uh, under undue pressure or make life harder for you than it needs to be. And so we have quite a few exemptions for people who are traveling. For example, if you're traveling in the month of Ramadan, you don't have to fast. Um, you can make up the fasts later when you're no longer traveling because traveling is hard. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you know, right? <laughs> yes. It can be as romantic and exciting as it sounds or as cool as it looks on Instagram. When it comes down to the nitty gritty, it can be so challenging and it really helps you to get to know yourself as a person. If you're traveling with a friend, sometimes it can make or break a friendship, right? Because that's where you really get to know each other. And I think that's such a beautiful process, it's such a beautiful experience that more people should be able to, to have access to. Absolutely. Um, so I actually wanted to say, if you're listening and you aren't familiar with halal, it just means food that is permissible according to Islamic law. And commonly you'll see it applying to meat, um, which has been slaughtered and blessed in a specific way. Um, before we chat a bit more about this, Sumaya, I wanted to ask if there's anything I'm missing there. That's it, yeah. Perfect. So on your website, you talk about how one of your experiences growing up was going to the beach with home-cooked meals because you knew there wouldn't be halal food available nearby. Along with bringing food from home, you also talked about how you would wear makeshift modest swimmer because burkinis hadn't been invented yet, like you were mentioning in Turkey. I think this anecdote is a good segue into talking about some more of the barriers that Muslim travelers are facing. So food isn't something we've talked about yet. Could you talk a bit about this and how it factors into the travel experience for Muslim travelers? Yeah, so I'd say by and large, Muslims, we're big foodies. Um, a lot of us come from traditions of amazing gastronomy and, and recipes passed down from generation to generation. So we love food as, as a kind of social glue and as a way of literally tasting other cultures and, and immersing yourself in travel experiences. And so it can be quite upsetting to feel like you can't do that when you're traveling because for example, the food isn't halal. Maybe it has, it might have fish in, for example, fish 
doesn't have to be sorted in a certain way. But if there's alcohol in the dish, then that's not permissible because we don't drink alcohol. So little small things like this that people may not be aware of. And I think there is a growing awareness now of what it means to serve halal food. These are small challenges that can be overcome, much in the same way that you now have uh, more establishments acknowledging things like veganism and, and catering to veganism or simple dietary requirements like lack of nuts or allergies to nuts so it's just about a kind of raising awareness and one of the best ways i think that's happened is because the halal food industry itself is another billion dollar market it's rapidly growing i mean i i can see myself in the last 10 years or so that i've lived in wembley where before there was only like a handful of halal food places now there are loads and you know really nice kind of gourmet restaurants and this is a growing trend that we're seeing uh, in, in lots of destinations, I say in many of the major cities in the UK, but also if you're looking really further afield, places like South Korea, for example, has done a, an excellent job of learning and understanding what Muslim travellers are looking for and catering to that. And so they've been holding for a few years now, uh, it's an annual festival, it's called the Halal Restaurant Week. And it actually lasts a month. It's not a week. During that time, you have all these kind of promotions and discount codes where you can go and visit lots of different restaurants all over the capital, Seoul, I think primarily in Seoul, that will be serving halal food. And some of those uh, some of those restaurants might not be serving halal food on a regular basis, but it's a good way for them to kind of see well, how much interest is there in this service and how difficult is it for me on a practical level to be able to offer this service. So not only is it a great way to raise awareness for restaurateurs and, and people involved in the tourism industry, but it's also a great way to show Muslim travelers that, hey, we're really interested in attracting you and we understand what you want and we're taking note and hey we've organized a halal restaurant week so that you can come and enjoy authentic korean beef bulgogi or ramen and all of those cool dishes that you see on k-dramas or on instagram so these kind of initiatives are starting to pop up i'd say hong kong as well is another tourism board the hong kong tourism board itself actually in recent years has even got a microsite dedicated to muslim travelers and it has a big image of two women wearing a headscarf kind of again just small things like that acknowledging the representation can have such a huge impact on the way that muslims feel uh when they're choosing a travel destination and inclining them to visit that destination more over another destination yeah i'd love to ask a bit more about representation because this is something we've talked about often on the show about just how representation in tourism media has just been so like white and male mm -hmm. for so long um yeah yeah like how have you seen it evolve just in your lifetime yeah i mean <laughs> it's funny because if we're being honest m muslim media representation in general is very negative it does have a kind of a psychological impact I think, whether it's conscious or subconscious, on the way that Muslims, especially young Muslims, you know, growing up, it can be quite hard, the way that we perceive ourselves. And if you kind of think of any travel magazine across the board, any of those famous names, I'm not going to name any because, you know, they're quite well known, but any of them that pop up in your mind, how many times could you say you've actually seen a visibly Muslim traveller featured in the magazine in any of uh, the articles? few and far between, if any. And most of the time, if you did see a visibly Muslim traveller in an image, it's going to be in a service position. For example, you might see a Moroccan woman wearing a headscarf pouring tea or, or a Moroccan man in, in a headdress wearing, pouring tea. So it's usually the other way around where you're seeing people visiting that destination. And, you know, Muslims are very well known for being very hospitable, some of the most hospitable countries in the world, like Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey. These are based on Islamic cultures and Islamic values. So it's a big issue. But I think we are certainly at Halal Travel Guide. We're trying to fill in that gap by just creating our own content and creating our own narrative and, and giving people confidence to, despite not seeing themselves in countries like South Korea or Hong Kong or, or Japan, which are destinations that most of us really would not have considered visiting even a few years ago that's changing and it can change with something as small as an Instagram photo and a caption or a blog article and bit by bit I think when you kind of take hold of that narrative yourself and you don't allow what general media portrays it it's one step further towards taking control of the decisions that you make when you're choosing how to travel and how it can enrich your life experiences and build on your identity as well 
Yeah. So obviously these barriers like lack of representation and um, challenges in finding halal food make travel more challenging from a practical perspective for Muslim travelers. But I'm curious about how these barriers might impact you and other Muslim travelers in terms of your Islamic identity. Do you feel that there isn't enough accommodation for Muslim travels in the tourism industry? And how does that impact you like mentally? Yeah, I mean, 100% there isn't enough. And part of it is to do with the fact that 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't really a market for this kind of leisure tourism uh, in the Muslim travel market. It it was kind of small, but growing and, and, and not particularly recorded, I don't think even, to be honest, because Muslim travelers have always traveled to visit certain places, but it's it's never really been kind of on the map. It's only in the last 10 or 15 years or so that people have started to notice that you've got a really high proportion of high income young Muslims. I mean, about 70% of the global Muslim market is aged under 40, around 60% is aged under 30. And so you can just see kind of from a demographics perspective, you've got millions of people, in fact, you know, billions, who are coming into their most financially productive years. They're starting to marry much later. So they're having children later. And so they've got the time and the money to travel and explore the world. And especially with globalization and the social media, they want to be able to access new travel experiences. So not being able to see that offered in the mainstream travel market is no longer being a barrier anymore because people are realizing, well, I can actually find a way to do this myself. You know, for example, in the last couple of years, we've been invited to sit with tourism boards like New York, for example, I think is, is a great example where you wouldn't imagine, I mean, certainly we wouldn't have imagined a few years ago that New York would be interested in attracting Muslim travelers because why would they? It's an established tourism destination and they have a brand. But they have come forward and said, actually, we recognize that this is a valuable market. It's a growing market and it's very underserved. We don't have any idea about how we can access Muslim travelers. What do we need to do to be able to to change that and and access this market and, and service this market? So I think money makes a big difference in terms of encouraging tourism boards, destinations um, to recognize that there is value to be had in investing in this market. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like coming from an altruistic uh, perspective. I mean, you know, it's, it's business ultimately. But because of the kind of challenges that we have faced kind of growing up with negative Muslim perceptions in the media, particularly over the last 20 years or so, I think this has a profound impact on the way that Muslims make their travel decisions. And that's why exploring Islamic heritage can be such a motivator because naturally any human being wants to be able to seek out stories that are related to them about their heritage, about their identity, about their their ancestors, just like any human would like to. And they want to find stories that are actually inspiring and positive. And there are so many of those that are not known even in the Muslim community. For example, in Uzbekistan, it was home to so many uh, scientific achievements and scientific discoveries and, and things like naming a lot of the stars that we have today. You know, some a lot of the names of stars, if you just kind of look at a star map, they come from Arabic words or they were from Arabic words and they were from Muslim scholars located in places like Uzbekistan and, and in Iraq who took the time to create instruments that would enable them to map the solar system and, and map the planets and this kind of thing. So Little things like this can make a difference towards helping, especially young Muslims, feel like, actually, I have a heritage to be proud of, an identity to be proud of and feel confident in without feeling like I have to kind of hide myself. And so small things like that can make a big difference. But ultimately, I think just like anyone traveling, Muslim travelers want to feel welcome. And so it doesn't necessarily mean uh, exploring Islamic heritage. It can mean just going to Korea and learning about Korean heritage or going to Japan and learning Japanese customs by trying on a kimono and doing a tea ceremony or visiting a samurai show. I mean, these are all things that Muslim travelers love to do, just like travelers anywhere. I've actually read like there's a long history of travel and exploration in Muslim history as well. Like Muslim people were paving the way for travel like hundreds of years ago. And there's really interesting history about this that I've been reading that like gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of from a philosophical perspective, 
we believe and we've been taught that you are in this world as a traveller. So don't get too attached to it. Don't get too attached to things and worldly achievements. You should care a little bit more about things that are bigger than that. So our whole philosophy is based on that. But in the Quran as well, there are a lot of references to travel. Like uh, God advises us in the Quran to travel and observe and, and see how how the world is, how landscapes are, observe how people are and how you have different tribes and different cultures and different ethnicities. The point being that you can learn so much from this experience and also comes to the realization that we share so much more than we are different. To lean into that a little bit more, actually, I'm curious about how you're able to predict whether or not a destination will be accommodating for Muslim travelers. So what kind of research do you do and what kind of things are you looking for? So, I mean, now that it's very easy to plan trips online, it's so much easier now than it was like 10 years ago to just kind of do some searches to see if people have compiled lists, for example, best halal restaurants to try, I don't know, in London or Paris. Or So that's a really good starting point. And I think most people probably start their search with food. Is there availability of halal food? Because if there isn't, it's not the end of the world. It's just you kind of you know what to expect um, and, and what kind of food you'll be eating and whether that's something that is, is going to be appealing to you. So it usually starts off with that. And if you can find really available information online, then certainly for the destination, that's a big boon because you're much more likely as a Muslim traveler to visit if you know that there is some sort of availability of halal food. Even better if it's halal food that's in the style of the local cuisine, like I mentioned earlier, you know, not just kind of generic what you might expect or what someone might think a Muslim eats because Muslims come from all, and, you know, all sorts of cultures and, and foodie backgrounds. And so there's no kind of one set rule about what Muslims like to eat. So that is kind of the biggest green flag that you, you might look out for. I'd say a red flag is probably um, in the way that a destination is known for treating Muslim women because we are obviously the most uh, visible members of the Muslim community. And where you hear reports of women being told they can't wear a burkini, for example, or being told that they are not welcome to wear their headscarves at institutions or in workplaces, that's a big red flag and it can put people off choosing to visit that destination, whether they wear a headscarf or not, because it's a good indicator for how welcome you're likely to feel and how welcome you are. Yeah, well, like, why would you want to travel somewhere where you know that there's going to be discrimination? Yeah, I mean, sadly, people still do, because we had such a low expectation as as to what we should expect as Muslim travelers, especially if you've been living in Europe or the US or Canada, we kind of got used to it, you know, because a lot, some of these experiences happen in your own communities where you live, you know, you kind of get used to this type of treatment. And so you kind of think, well, if, if it happens abroad, it's just much more of the same at home. But now that destinations, like I mentioned earlier, in, in Far East Asia, like South Korea and Japan, are actively trying to show that we want to welcome you as you are, and we're happy to have you as you are, Muslim travelers are becoming much more discerning, and they recognize that they have a value, and they want to be able to choose destinations that will value them. Yeah. If it's choice between the two, you're of course going to go with the destination that is actively putting effort towards like giving you a positive experience. Yeah. And I should say, actually, like this isn't different if it's a a Muslim majority country. So there's something called the OIC. You might have heard of it. It's called the Organization of Islamic Countries. I believe it's the second largest organization in the world after the UN. And essentially it's an organization of Muslim majority countries. And you might assume that all of those destinations will be places where Muslim travellers are welcome, but you only have to look on social media to see women in particular, again, Muslim women reporting where they've been to uh, a hotel in places like Morocco or in Tunisia, uh, where they've been told they're not allowed to wear a burkini, only bikinis or swimsuits allowed. Mm. But, and that's even if it's a burkini that's you know completely compliant and, and made of the right type of material and X, Y, Z. It's, you know, in those circumstances, it's very clear that it's just, we're not welcome there. And so it's it's a huge challenge. It's very upsetting. But like I said, because other destinations are recognizing the value of having Muslim travelers visiting and they are putting that message out there, Muslim travelers are becoming much more discerning and they are showing that with their feet. Ugh, hearing that is just so frustrating because it's just like women just have to be criticized for like everything. <laughs> like you just, just let us wear what we want to wear. <laughs> It's always down to the clothing. It's always about clothes. It always is. (laughs) And I guess it all boils down to 
a person's like personal boundaries as well. Cause like with food, even I know like I have food allergies and I sometimes find like, I'm just not in the mood to try to talk to someone about what I can't eat. And so like, it'll shape the way my day goes. And I'm sure some of it boils down to that for a Muslim traveler as well. Like how much do they want to have to talk about (laughs) it or do they want an easy trip where you can just walk into a restaurant where it says on right on the door, like halal food offered Yeah, honestly, that's another thing as well. It's that social anxiety. I can really relate to that because growing up, I really did not want to have that conversation with a waiter. So I would just automatically be like, okay, just give me a margarita pizza. (laughs) Job done. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Pick your battles sometimes. (laughs) Honestly, yes. So I wanted to chat a bit more about Halal Travel Guide, um, which runs trips for Muslim travelers to destinations all over the world. I noticed that many of the trips have a special focus on exploring Islamic history, and your website says that the goal of this is to help Muslim travelers own their own narrative. I'm sure for some travelers on your tours, part of the experience is learning heritage that might be very close or relevant to them. Why is it important for you that Muslim travelers have the chance to learn these histories? I mean, the main reason is because narratives are often dictated to us and you internalize them and you feed that into your identity and therefore your life choices and what you think you can or can't do based on the narrative that you have heard all your life. And it can have such a huge impact on the way you live your life. And growing up kind of in a hostile climate, it naturally puts you on travel. I mean, I could give you an example. Traveling to Switzerland a few years ago with my husband and my daughter, I think she was four years old at the time. We went through passport control and uh, there was, I think, a French family in front of us. And the officer at passport control was very friendly and very welcoming. And then when we went for our turn, he was quite abrupt and, and cold and we didn't say anything. But my daughter, who's only four years old, noticed and she asked, she said, mommy, why does he not look happy to see us? Why did he seem you know, unhappy. And and it could be anything, but you start to tell yourself a narrative, which is, it's because I'm Muslim and he doesn't want me here. Because that's a narrative that you've heard so often and so frequently. And so trying to combat this with narratives that kind of nullify that completely is so important. And I think Bosnia is a really great example of that because uh, Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, is, is also known as the Jerusalem of Europe because for centuries you would be able to hear the sound of church bells and the sound of the adhan from the mosque. At the same time, you'd have synagogues and churches and mosques all within walking distance of each other. People lived together harmoniously, they intermarried, and it was literally the Jerusalem of Europe. And so this idea that we can't live together, you know, in in a way that's uh, helpful to society or beneficial to society is just a complete myth. And it's something that we kind of have to teach ourselves. And one of the best ways to do that is through travel, because you can't find these stories in a lot of the history books that we pick up at school or in the libraries. You just won't find them. And so the best way that I found to do this is just literally speaking with local people and having local guides. And that's one of the reasons why we really emphasize centering the local guide on our tours because it's really important for us that we are not telling their stories they are telling their stories and they are sharing their life experiences and their oral histories and their perspectives so that you can really gain access to something that's really unique something that's not available online and something that empowers you as a muslim for example when you hear that in uh, in sarajevo for centuries, uh, it was it was very safe and very normal to be close friends with your Orthodox Jewish neighbor or your your Catholic neighbor, and um, you were able to get along very well. That's a really important thing to know, especially when you hear about the war that took place in the 1990s, which was pretty much based on religious and ethnic uh, divisions. And so, people don't know these stories. People know about the war, um, and they know about the motivations behind the war, but they don't know. Well, actually, that was something that happened over a short period of time but for a long time before that people lived together really well so it's it's really important to have that balance and I think um, working with local guides and, and learning more about the history of each destination that we're working in has 
has really helped a lot of our guests to feel like they've come back with a, a fresher perspective on how they see themselves as Muslims, how they see the wider Muslim community coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, different life experiences, different skin colours, different languages, but you know, united by faith and shared values. Mm-hmm. I really love that you brought up the example of Bosnia because that I, I've actually talked about it recently on the show. That's a place that I've traveled to that left such an intense impression on me that was completely unexpected. I actually traveled there sort of by accident. I was headed to another place and my flight got canceled. And so I was like, I'm going to just fly somewhere random. And I chose to fly to Sarajevo. And I remember flying there and telling my dad that I was going to Sarajevo. And all he said was, oh, like, are is that a destination now, like post-war? All he knew was the war. Yes. And because I think that's a lot of people, especially who were born in the 90s, like I was born in the 90s, all I knew about Bosnia was that they had had this horrific war. But traveling there, obviously you learn a lot about the war, but I had the same impression. I spoke with so many people and so much of the history that I learned was about what happened before that war and about the harmonious way that people were living in that country and it really left like such an impression on me I think it's a place that everyone everyone needs to go to because it it really um, impacted me absolutely I mean you know you hit the nail on the head with your dad's reaction because we get that reaction nearly all the time and guests will tell us you know oh when I told my colleague at work that I was going to Bosnia their first question was is it safe are you going to be okay but wasn't there a war there recently? I mean, it's been nearly 30 yeah. years since the war took place, yeah. you know, and they've done a really good job of, of rebuilding. Yeah. So I actually wanted to talk a bit more about that. For listeners who might not know, the 1995 Srebrenica genocide occurred there in which thousands of Bosnian Muslim boys and men were killed. Can you talk about the significance for Muslim travelers when they visit sites like this? And how do you navigate um, bringing visitors to places that might be difficult emotionally to come to terms with? Mm. I mean, I'd say kudos to the Muslim community, community in that a lot of them are already aware of Srebrenica and what took place and sometimes that's often a motivation for why they want to visit Bosnia in the first place which is to pay their respects by like praying for the deceased and just learning more about that story but nine times out of ten I've noticed that they leave with an impression that perhaps they weren't expecting to get because you know visiting the site of Srebrenica is is really harrowing actually learning about this story is really important a because it's a genocide that took place on European soil after we said we wouldn't, you know, do what we did in World War Two ever again. And, and it did take place. But unfortunately, it's it's not really covered much in curriculums. Considering we're living in the UK and Europe, you would kind of expect that we'd have uh, at least a little bit more knowledge on it. But we don't oftentimes. And so it's A, important to learn about what happened. But B, I think perhaps more importantly, to learn about how... Um, Bosnians have rebuilt after that because it's very easy to have this kind of uh, I'd say like it's very easy to pity people but actually when I've been I've seen actually there's that Bosnians are very resilient and they have they're fighters they really are I mean they have worked very hard to rebuild their communities their economy their education systems despite all of the political challenges that they're consistently facing I mean Bosnia has three presidents. I don't think there's any country in the world that has three presidents, let alone a country of, of that size, because it's not, not a big country. I'll give you a practical example, which is the Tunnel of Hope. So we'll take guests to visit Trebrinita, but then they will also visit the Tunnel of Hope, which gives you a different aspect of the narrative. And the Tunnel of Hope essentially is an underground tunnel that was built and essentially kept the city of Sarajevo alive for years. They were underwent the longest siege in modern day history, and they were able to put supplies, medical supplies, weapons. They were even transported people, goats, through this underground tunnel. And it was through this that they were able to eventually stave off Serbian aggression and eventually come to some sort of conclusion of the war. And this was despite the fact that at the very beginning, the Bosnians didn't actually have an army at all. And, and in the Tunnel of Hope, you can see that the army uniform was just jeans and a t-shirt, jeans and a jumper. They didn't have training. They didn't have weapons. And they could have very easily given up. And in fact, at the time, uh, Serbian ethno-nationalists thought that they would have Sarajevo within three days. It was going to be a walk in the park because 
Serbia had acquired one of the most advanced armies at the time, the Yugoslav army. And so they not only had access to tanks and weapons, but they also had access to the knowledge and know-how how to how to successfully run a war. So the fact that Bosnians, despite these kind of crazy odds, were able to, they had A, the willpower to still fight and kind of fight for their own uh, survival and their own independence, and then do so in such a way that by the end of the war, they were powerful enough to rebuild their community. I think it's something inspiring and it shows us that even when you face incredible challenges, even when you face unspeakable horrors, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and, and there is a possibility for hope. And you see that in the Bosnian people and how they're trying really hard to rebuild and create a, a better future for their children. Because a lot of the people that went through this experience, they're still alive and they remember it and they know it very well. Yeah, like I recall meeting people my age on that trip and chatting with them and just like having this realization about how different their childhood had been because they were so open with sharing like how they'd grown up like during the siege in many cases and their parents were involved and I literally have no words for how intense it was to to just meet people who had had this harrowing childhood like compared to the childhood that I had had growing up here in Canada you literally can't go to Sarajevo and not engage with this history and these experiences that people have had there throughout the war. It's it's a valuable lesson, I think, that anyone can learn from, which is, yes, there are horrific things that happen, but there are also wonderful examples of humanity and resilience. And it's an inspiration that I think all of us can draw upon. And one of the best ways to do that, of course, is to visit and, and to speak with the locals and have a local guide and and learn more about that story so that when you come back, you're not just kind of sharing the stories of, of how Harry the experience was for the locals, but also how they've rebuilt and how there is so much hope and positivity and productivity coming out of it. I've noticed, like, obviously, just in this discussion, but also in looking at your tours, that there's a big emphasis on bridging the gap between visitors and locals and fostering cross-cultural engagement. I just want to ask, like, how are you finding ways to do this so well with your tour groups? Um, so definitely at the heart of it is working very closely with the local community and getting their input and their feedback and their guidance, then translating that in such a way that it's relatable to our travellers. So we have primarily, I'd say, young Muslim travellers aged between 25 to 40, but we get guests from all over and I should say as well we've had non-Muslim travellers come I mean non-Muslims are welcome to come that's why we specifically say the trips are designed with Muslims in mind but they're not only for Muslims we want people to feel welcome and, and to feel like they can also take part in these experiences and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we've been able to kind of bridge that gap so well which is that we're trying really hard to be respectful of of the local people but also of the people joining the trips who come from different backgrounds different places in their lives and they, they're looking for something transformative. They're looking for something that will enable them to go back feeling like they've built upon their uh, personal development in, in some way or their identity. Because these are not kind of beach holidays, which are fine, you know, but these aren't beach holidays or package holidays or or even kind of uh, tick off your bucket list type trips. These are transformative trips where you will hear stories that might be hard to hear, where you will meet people that have been through all sorts of life experiences but you will also have now a friend in Uzbekistan and a friend in Jordan and a friend in Bosnia and someone that you can call on or stay in contact with even after the trip and even within the group you'll you'll meet people again from different life experiences different challenges and by uh, creating that kind of safe space within which people are able to explore all of these different things it's a wonderful privilege and it's it's a great it's an honour, to be honest, to be able to do that and, and, and do it in such a way that it's benefiting the local people, the local destination, and also benefiting the guests that join our trips. What message would you like to share with Muslim folks who may be nervous or overwhelmed with the idea of travelling abroad? Like, what big takeaway would you like them to take away from this discussion? I mean, look, it, it is daunting to travel abroad, especially if it's your first time or if you've only ever done it with family or in a certain way. But I really believe that the benefits of traveling, both for you as a person, but for wider society at large, outweigh any of these fears or uncertainties or unknowns. And, you know, the world is a beautiful place. It's full of incredible landscapes. It's full of diverse cultures, uh, diverse cuisines. And 
fascinating histories and stories that are waiting to be told. And you can't do that if you don't take that leap of faith and try something that's a little bit different, that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And where we are today in 2023, I'd say for Muslim travelers, we're in a really great place where you now have access to destinations that are really trying very hard to welcome you to come and visit. And you also have companies and and just uh, people in general who are trying to make it easier for you to head out there and explore the world. So it's a really positive experience. You'll find that you learn a lot about yourself and you may even find that people are curious about your faith and, and your culture and they're eager to learn more. I mean, I remember when I went to South Korea, I landed in Incheon Airport and my first thought was, why on earth am I here? I have just flown more than like 16 or 17 hours. It was an indirect flight. I was completely tired. And at the airport, which I thought would at least be a little bit kind of multicultural, all I could see was like a sea of Koreans around me. And I just thought, I stick out like a sore thumb. Why am I here? But actually, throughout the three weeks that I was in Korea, I had such a positive experience with local people who uh, would ask me questions about why I'm dressed this way, but in such a way that I didn't feel disrespected. I felt that they were genuinely interested and they wanted to know more. And they were very polite and very eager to learn more about what it means to be a Muslim. And so it can be a great starting point, to be honest. Sometimes it can be a great icebreaker and it can be a great way to realize actually the world is not as scary as it can seem online or in the news or in the headlines that you see. And it's it's so worth exploring for your mental health for your physical health, but also for your spiritual health as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you've tapped into something that is is something I've always loved about travel, which is that you can create such important cross-cultural connections through travel and learn so much about other people and how other people live and how other people identify. And that's something I've also really enjoyed about traveling. Okay, so final question. We're going to ask about some tips for London. I'm traveling to London shortly, actually, so I'm very (laughs) excited for this. Favorite restaurants, favorite things to do. What insider tips do you have to share? Ooh, okay. So I would say, I mean, East London actually is changing a lot. It's become like a kind of snazzy, cool place to be where all the hip cafes are popping up. So if East London is not on your list of places to explore, I would say definitely spend at least half a day just kind of wandering around the streets and you'll you'll, you'll come across the most random and interesting cafes. I'd say my top tip is, I think London in the UK in general is very famous for, for afternoon tea. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people come to try afternoon tea. And actually, I have a friend from Croatia who came and tried out recently and she was bitterly disappointed. She was like, it's just sandwiches and cake. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, like it's, <laughs> that's afternoon tea. So I would say there is a way to have the the quintessential British experience without having to pay the cost of the afternoon tea or having to go through all those sandwiches because you know, they're, not, they're not for everyone, um, which is to have a cream tea instead. And one of the nicest places you can have a cream tea in London is in Sketch. They have fabulous bathrooms. <laughs> That's one of the first photos that will show up. If you visit Sketch, they have these like pod bathrooms. But they, you know, it's a nice place to to have afternoon, to have cream tea, sorry, which is, is basically tea with scones and jam and cream oh. without the sandwiches. It's very enjoyable. And in Sketch, they have multiple rooms and each room is designed based on a theme. And so it's a really cool place to visit. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. Okay, I'm looking this up right now because that is one of the things I wanted to do. I'm visiting a friend and he actually lives in East London, so I'll definitely be exploring that area. I also need to eat a crumpet because my cat is named Crumpet and I've never had one in my life. So I was like, this is my chance. I'm going to the UK. They will have crumpets. You can get crumpets at most supermarkets. Get some nice butter with it. I'd say get maybe Kerrygold or Anchor. They have some of the best get salted version, a salted block of butter, load it on there and it will taste really good. Beautiful. (laughs) And thank you so much for joining us. I guess I should ask you, where can people find you if they want to look at your tours or learn more about you? Yeah, we're on social media, pretty much every social media platform you can think of. (laughs) If you want to go on our website, it's simple. It's halaltravelguide.net. Um, you can get in touch there or you can drop us a message on Instagram, which is Halal Travel Guide, and we'll be very happy to have a chat with you. 
Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is Night Stars by Wolf Saiga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. All right, pals, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode that unpacks how we can travel in a way that is better for people and for the planet. <laughs>